as a, as a pastor, I have the privilege of preaching the Bible every week, studying the Bible, thinking about how I'm going to communicate it. And one of the convictions I have is that the Bible is sufficient for you to hear, read, songs sung, prayers prayed, word preached and explained, taught and applied, that, that that's enough. When this church got started, that was a conviction from the beginning. We don't need to do theatrics. We don't need to try and entertain. That if we just simply center ourselves around the Bible, that that will hold the attention of His people. That people will want to stay awake. That they'll make effort to go to bed early, to wake up excited about the Bible. That people actually like to hear God's Word. Not all people. Some people don't like it, but in general, if you have God's Spirit in you, you love to hear His Word, and that it has a distinct message. It has a unique message that's unlike any other message you're going to hear. We don't need to sound like the world. The world's message is in the radio, it's in the movies, it's on the newspaper, it's on your Facebook feeds, etc. How about when you come to church, you hear something gloriously and wonderfully different? And that's found in the Bible. And we don't have to necessarily spice it up. We don't have to try and make it look beautiful. Some people can teach it more eloquently. Some people can teach it less eloquently. But no matter who it is, what if it was the Bible that we teach week in and week out? I'm convinced of this. You all are still here. You're helping prove the point. So I think of those things because we're about to open a passage that when I read it, you're going to be like, huh? What in the world's going on here? We're going to hear stories about ancient people and them having children. And that is supposed to be some life-changing, world-transforming truth? And the answer is yes. And so I would encourage you, turn with me to Galatians chapter 4 on page 974 of your Bibles. And my hope is that I will stick to the Bible today with all of its complexities and peculiarities, at least in this passage. Some of you might know that Peter at one time said, the Apostle Paul writes some hard things to understand. And so this could be one of those instances that he's referring to when he read some of Paul's letters. Galatians, we think, might have been one of the earliest letters that would have been written, so let's see what you make of it. Galatians chapter 4, verse 21 through 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. 
One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, you are children of the promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is God's word. (laughs) Do you see what I'm saying? If you are not the only one scratching your head, metaphorically speaking, or wondering, what in the world is going on here? I had a church member earlier this week say, is this supposed to be like obvious or easy to understand? Because I'm not getting it. So, you're not alone if you feel that way. And many people have said this is the most difficult part of Galatians to understand. But I think if we can simplify it into three simple questions, you will see that the Bible has some wonderful things to say in this passage. And I think it, it will hold your attention and you will hopefully not fall asleep. And you will be glad that you came this morning. That's my hope and prayer. So here are the three questions. The big idea of Galatians is who is truly a child of Abraham? It's the big idea. Who's really of God's blessing? If you have that question in your mind, you'll understand Galatians better. And I've been repeating it again and again. So who's really a child of Abraham and a truly a son of God? And to put it another way then... A child of Abraham is going to receive the blessings of Abraham. That's why it matters. That's why you'd want to be a child of Abraham. So if you wanted to put it real simply for you, do you want to receive the blessings of God? That's that's the big question that Galatians is trying to explain. Who gets the blessings of the Abraham blessing? So here's my three questions based on that big idea that's going in Galatians from this passage. Question number one. Who does it come to? The blessing, that is. Who does it come to? Question two. How does it happen? How does the blessing come? How does the children of Abraham come? And question three. What does it look like when it comes? Like, if it comes, am I going to know what it looks like? Have I received it? Have I not received it? What does this being a child of Abraham and receive God's blessing, what does that look like? And so because of the complexity of this passage, I'm going to give you the three answers right off the top. Ready? And they're going to be right from the text. That's what I'm saying. The Bible is going to answer these. We're going to stick in the Bible. And I think it's going to be good for you. Question one. 
Who does it come to? Answer? Look at verse 27. The barren one. The desolate one. Question number two. How does it come? How does God's promise come to the barren, desolate one? Look at verse 23. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. How does it come? Not by the flesh, but by the promise of God. So blessing comes to who? To barren, desolate women and children. Comes to those kind of people. How? Not by flesh. Not by human action, but by the promise of God. Question three. What does it look like when it comes? Verse 29. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. That is being contrasted. So you've got persecution against the children of Abraham, but the children of Abraham are to be doing what? Look again at verse 27. Rejoicing. Breaking forth and crying out loud. So joy for those who are children of Abraham, true children of Abraham, and persecution for those who are half-brothers and sisters, false children of Abraham. That's what it looks like. You'll either be persecuting or you will be joyful. Let's take those one at a time. Question one, who does it come to? I'm going to read the passage. Stop at verse 28. And I want you to just see the big idea that it comes to the barren, the desolate, the poor, the outcast, the marginal. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. And she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. I think it'll be helpful if we start with this question, because you can see very clearly, without getting lost in all the details, that there's a comparison between two women. Do you all see that? There's this woman that's not named, and her name is Sarai, and we read about it just earlier in the Old Testament Scripture reading. Nate Chang came up, he read to us Genesis chapter 16, and you saw there's this woman, Sarai, she was married to Abraham. But how many children did she have in Genesis 16, verse 1? Sarah bore no children. And if you know Genesis 12 comes before Genesis 16, God promised that Abraham was going to have so many children that he could not even count them like looking at the number of stars in the sky. 
So the story here that's being referenced is that God made a promise to Abraham that you're going to have a bunch of children. Now, he, he's already married, and so he's thinking, well, it's not working out so well with this wife. And so they come up with a plan. How about we try and have children through the slave woman? And that's the comparison. So let's just first start with this simple question. Who did the promised blessing come through? Sarah or Hagar? And the answer is quite clear, isn't it? Sarah. It came through Sarah. But wait, she didn't have any children. Well, that's because the story doesn't stop there. The story goes on in Genesis 21, and it said that then Sarah, even though she was really old, even though she was past the age of having children, the Lord gave her a woman just as he promised. So let's pause. Let's get this idea. This is worthwhile. God brings his blessing not to the young, but to the old. Not to the woman who appears to be fertile, but barren. Not to the one who you would think. Not to the one who humanly possibly could have a child. Who does God come to with his blessings? This story and this passage of Scripture is teaching us that if you want to get God's blessing, you need to be one of these kind of people, a Sarah kind of person. You need to be poor. You need to be an outcast. You need to be a marginalized, weak person. The Bible says grace is not for the fertile Hagars, but for the barren Sarahs. If Sarah could have a future, then you, my friend, can have a future no matter who you are today. If Sarah can be the mother of all the nation of Israel, the founding patriarchal mother of millions and millions of physical descendant children, but then thousands upon thousands and millions more spiritual children. If that can come through her, then God's blessing can come to anyone. In fact, I think it even goes deeper than this. Paul is not saying that his gospel of blessing through Abraham is for the barren. Well, it is, but it's especially for the barren. That's the emphasis of this story. Those who are able, those who are strong, those who want to try and do it by their own power and strength, they are opposing the blessing of God. You will receive no blessing if you try and do it yourself. You can't be that kind of person. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's what this story is in part teaching us. Is that not glorious? Is that not good news for you? Is that not good news for the whole world? That God's blessing comes through the, the least likely, the impossible situation. So are you here today and feeling weak? God's grace comes to weak people and Jesus becomes your strength. Are you feeling sick? Sick in the head? Sick in your human body? 
let the great physician, Jesus Christ, heal you. He came for sick people, not well people. Are any of you depressed? You feeling like nobody loves you? Let Christ be your love, acceptance, joy. Are you hungry? Let him be your bread of life. Are you thirsty? Let him be your living water. Are you poor? Then let him be your riches. Are you foolish? Let him be your wisdom. Do you feel cast out? Then let him bring you back in. Are you feeling sinful? Then make him your righteousness. Do you see the point? This passage is teaching us that the church is comprised. The grace of God is coming to people who are these kinds of people. Tim Keller has, I think, eloquently stated that the church then should be an inclusive, exclusive body. I think that's the application from this point. What kind of people should we be? An inclusive, exclusive body. Community. An inclusive, exclusive community. What what does that mean? The world will tell you that God and salvation, if you just listen to the world and not the Bible, you have to be good. You have to be strong. You have to be righteous. You have to be intellectually elite. The Bible, it tells you you have to be weak. You have to be poor. You have to be broken. Do you realize how exclusive the message of the world is? How many people then can really pull off being strong all the time? How well are you doing at it? Do you see how exclusive? Like the number starts shrinking. How many of us are really good at waking up every morning and reading our Bibles every single day without fail? Praying five times a day? Day and night, all day long? How are you doing at being strong in and your own strength? See, this is the, the message of the world. That's the kind of people God blesses. That's the wrong message. The message you should be hearing today is God blesses people that just keep failing all the time again and again. They're weak people. They're needy people. So how incredibly inclusive is that message? That's the inclusive part. The gospel tells us that salvation is only for those who know that they're not good. And therefore, the exclusive part is that the only thing you need then is to know that you're not good and feel your need for him. Now, not everybody has that. And that's what makes it exclusive. But if you compare and contrast the religions of the world and the message of the world, the distinct message of the gospel is that it can be for anyone of every type Every moral performance, no matter what your past, whatever your record is, it doesn't matter how weak you are or what you've done. That's the most inclusive message in the world. But it is exclusive in the sense that you need to admit that you need something. Jesus actually said that the Bible, Jesus actually said that the able, the morally strong, are those that won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Did we not already read this in the New Testament reading? How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven? You know why we read that passage? Because Jesus says, with man, it's impossible. But those who rely and depend on God, all things are possible. So if you want to try and use your own riches, like the rich young ruler, it's going to be impossible. You can't do it. 
how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Would, would you just think for me a second, if you know anything about the life of Jesus, have you ever noticed that he's always going and receiving and accepting and welcoming the wrong people? The disciples are saying, no, 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 don't let the children come. He's saying, no, no, let the children come. The religious leaders are saying, no, no, make the lepers stay away. He's saying, I'm going to go touch the lepers. The demon-possessed men are out running around in caves. Jesus is going out and casting out demons. The whole society is telling women that you're inferior, that men are everything, that you have no say, no vote. And Jesus says to Mary, she has chosen the better portion. She is one of my disciples. Do, do you see the Gospels? Every single class of society, every single different type of person that you could imagine is the wrong kind of person, whether in that society or today's. Jesus is calling you, come. You're welcome. You are welcome in. What were the 12 disciples but ordinary men? Do you remember Acts chapter 4, verse 12? Read it sometime. Peter and John were preaching, and the religious leaders said, wow, these men are uneducated, common men. I don't know if that's an insult or a compliment. It says they were astonished. And he recognized that these men had been with Jesus. So as we think about this point, who is God's blessing coming to? If it's these kind of people, does that not help us shape our mission as a church? What kind of people should we be inviting to Embassy Church? Are there some people that we're not? Are there some people that you believe are too far off, too far gone, a lost cause? They could never be turned around? Are there some people that you would think, well, I just don't know if our church is for them? Should our church not be inclusive to, let's say, Muslims? LGBTs, orphans, widows, those in nursing homes. Maybe it's not them coming here, but us going to them. Children with special needs or autism. Think in your mind, who are the, the people of the world that are forgotten? Who are the people that nobody thinks are very powerful or not significant? Oh, those are the especially kind of people. Those people in particular. God comes to them. God works through them. God does miraculous things through those kind of people. Some of us are those kind of people. If you're a Christian, it's because you've admitted, I'm one of those kind of people. That's the first question. Who? Who is the blessing coming to? Second question, how did the blessing come? And the answer was, not according to the flesh, but according to God's promise. So we see this passage again. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. 
she corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. How does the blessings come? And the answer, you see in verse 23, is not, or 24, that, yeah, 23, not by the flesh, not according to the flesh, but according to the promise. Now you see in verse 24, he says, now this may be interpreted allegorically, because what we have is a story again, the same story that we just referred to. This time we're looking at not who it came to, but how it came. And the story we see is in Genesis chapter 16 that Nate read for us earlier. God made a promise to Abraham that you're going to have lots and lots of children. And then there weren't any children. And then another year or two went by and there weren't any more children. And there weren't any children at all. And then there weren't any children. And then eventually they got tired of waiting on God. And they said, this promise isn't coming. We're going to take matters into our own hands. So what Paul does is he uses these two people as an analogy. And when he says, allegorically, I think it would be important for you not to interpret the way you understand allegory. I do think Paul had that category. We know that Philo and other writers in his day used allegories. But take, for example, Pilgrim's Progress is probably one of the best-known Christian allegories. It has characters in it like Christian and worldly wise men and all kinds of weird places like the lake of despondency or all kinds of strange geographical locations. And you're not supposed to read that book and be like, well, where's that on the map? You're supposed to understand, oh yeah, Christian means a Christian. And if there's a strong Christian, you know, oh, that's the strong Christian. And it's all like make-believe, but it's to teach you a lesson. So is, is that what Paul's saying here? That this is just make-believe, that we should read Genesis, and it's like, it's all make-believe, but there's important lessons. I, I don't think so at all. It would be like me telling you, in the midst of your pain and suffering, God takes terrible situations, and he turns them into good. And one of the reasons we know that is because Jesus died on the cross, and that was a terrible situation. But look what he did, the resurrection from the dead. Now, what I'm doing is I'm using the resurrection as like an allegory, as a type of your death in your life. Now, not your literal death, but like your, man, I just lost something I really wanted. Well, God can take loss and death, and he can rise it again. And we know that because this is what he does. This is the resurrection. Now, the resurrection, if that's not historical, then we have no faith. We have no hope. And the point is, is that as a pastor, you know when I'm talking about historical events, and I'm using them as an allegory for your own life. And I think that's exactly what Paul's doing here. There's no reason for us to think that he doesn't think that these are historical real events, that Abraham was a real person, and so was Sarah and Hagar. But what he's doing is he's saying there's a way God works. And if you follow the story, this is the way God works, not just here, but it's the way he works in his two covenants. And that's why he says they correspond to the two covenants. He says that's why they correspond with Jerusalem. And the Jerusalem is the Jerusalem of his day. And then he says the Jerusalem above, meaning the heavenly Jerusalem, the true Jerusalem. So the whole thing is to say there's these two kinds of people. There's these two kinds of ways that God works. There's one where God works where people believe by faith in the promise and they receive the blessing. And then there's people that receive the promise. Well, they don't because they're trying to do it themselves. Those are the two kinds of people. 
And those correspond to the two kinds of covenant, like Mount Sinai. The law came down in Mount Sinai. So that's the whole big idea. The whole big idea is that God works through his promises in the one story, and then humans mess it up by trying to take matters into their own hands. So it's a type. It's a way for you to learn a lesson. This is what God does. And so there's a pattern all through the Bible, and that's the way I think you should think about that word allegorically. Hey, there's something here. There's a pattern that we see in Scripture. This is what God does. Adam and Eve, they're like Hagar. They took matters in their own hands. Cain took matters into his own hands. The Tower of Babel took matters into their own hands, trying to reach up to God. And you go on and on the story. People who try and take matters into their own hands and not let God work through them or change them or receive his grace by faith, those people end up cursed. Those people end up with judgment. What happens when the 12 spies go out and see, uh, can't trust God? A whole generation dies off in the book of Numbers. What happens when the children of those generation do enter the promised land and they say, hey guys, instead of bringing your big army and soldiers, I'd like you to march around the walls of Jericho and blow your trumpets. Do you see what I'm saying? This is what God does. He does foolish things. He takes people who trust God. Okay, we'll do it. We'll march around and we'll blow our trumpets. I don't know what this is going to do, but God said it, so we're going to do it. And then the walls come down. Do you see what I'm saying? Like You've got to imagine the military soldiers being like, hey, I'm big. I'm strong. I could do this. Let's go get him. No, no, no. We, he wants the trumpets. He, he wants us to shout. Okay, we'll go with the shouting and the trumpets. Imagine little David coming up and saying, I'll go, and all the other people snickering and laughing. Ha ha, David, you're too little. You're a scrawny boy. Do you see who's on the other side? It's Goliath. He's huge. There's no chance. No, I'm going to trust my God. I know that he will deliver me. Do you see the pattern? There's people who trust in God by faith, and then there's people who try and just do it themselves. When God says, whittle your army down to just even a few, you'll get victory. And it happens. How many times did that happen in the story of Israel? And then when they say, uh, that's kind of risky. I don't think we trust God here. We'll just keep all the soldiers. Then they get slaughtered. Time and time again throughout the Bible, we see a pattern of Hagar's versus Sarah's. We see Abraham's who believe by faith. And we see people who try and do it themselves. God loves to do things with small armies, barren women, orphaned children, poor, weak people. This is the way he works. This is how it comes. God's ways are not your ways. God's thoughts are not your thoughts. God loves weak things because, as we read in 1 Corinthians, he wants to show that there will be no boasting. It is all for him and for his glory. Therefore, we as a church, you know what we should do? We should get up every week and we should open up a book and read it and teach it and talk about Hagar and Sarah and just pray and read the word and let God do the rest. Now the world's going to look at that and be like, that's dumb, that's foolish. 
You need some lasers, Pastor Phil. People are going to fall asleep. It's not that interesting. Doctrine and theology is boring. Do you see what I'm saying here? You see how foolish it looks that we believe, right now, you believe that God's word changes and transforms hearts. That God's actions and work is happening through this meeting and other meetings like it throughout the week as we pray, as we read God's word, and as we love and care for those people that we just talked about that we should be reaching out to. And God does this all through weak, pitiful, nobody type people in the world's eyes so that he would get all honor and glory and praise. So church, are you comfortable with just weak things? Being weak yourself, but then looking at the means compared to the world's means and saying, we're just going to stick to the word and prayer. Those are our two weapons. Those are our two tools in our tool belt. We got word and we got prayer and we use those to love people. Is that foolish? Is that too simplistic? Question three, what it looks like when it comes. We know that it comes to people who are barren, who are desolate, who are unlikely to be the ones to receive God's blessing. We know that it comes through the promise. It comes through faith. It comes so that God would get all glory and praise. He does it in such a way that you would not for a second think, well, I saved myself. So then how do you know if it's come? Have you received God's blessing? Let's look at verses 28 through 31. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at the time when he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So now we're talking not about the two women. We've now moved on, and he's now applying to say, now who's the true children of Abraham? And he says, you, you're the true children of Abraham because you descend from Isaac. From those that are born not according to the flesh, but according to promise. That's the kind of religion we are. Christianity is the kind of religion where people are born of God, not because they've earned it, but because they've received a promise from God and believed it by faith. Now the story continues and says that there's two children, and Isaac and Ishmael don't get along. Ishmael apparently does not like Isaac. Maybe he's jealous. All we know is that in Genesis 21, when the child was grown up and weaned off of his mother, Abraham made a great feast on the day of that weaning. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, which his name is Ishmael, whom she had born, and he was laughing. And you could even translate this, he was mocking, he was scorning Isaac. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be the heir with my son Isaac. That's what he's referring to here. So now we know if you've been born as a Christian, born again, we know who your mother is based on whether you're going to be a persecutor or a rejoicer. That's what it looks like. 
You either take great joy in knowing that there's no chance I should be here right now, and I'm saved by sheer grace. Therefore, all I can do is rejoice in the goodness and glory of God. That's one kind of person. The other kind of person is constantly looking down and around and checking and looking and making sure they're keeping the rules. They end up becoming really self-righteous, and then they also get persecuting and domineering. So what I want you to see is that when we are children of Hagar, we are people who are persecutors. We persecute the people who are all about grace. The gospel is more threatening to religious people because religious people who are putting all their hopes in the things that they do will then hear the gospel message and be like, oh, but wait, that means you're saying all of my actions are useless? I don't like that. You're saying that before God, if I'm to stand before him right now, that all the acts I've done to give to the poor and help all of the hurting, and I'm trying to earn favor with God, all that, that's useless before God? No, 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 no. I worked hard for those things. You see how that's offensive to people? Do you see how it's offensive to the Galatians? Those that want to be under the law, that's how this whole thing starts in verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law. Now, we know from chapter 3, he's not talking about people who just want to obey God's law. He's talking about people who want to rely on the law to be the righteousness before God. That's a big difference. There's people that love and respect God and realize that God's changed their heart, and so now they want to obey him. And they use God's law to help, okay, let me figure out how to obey God. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about people who are under the law. Under the law meaning I better obey, and if I don't, then I have to have that law judge me. People who live their lives like that will be very difficult to be around. They're religious people. They're touchy. They're, they're nervous because they always have to determine how they're doing before God and others. They're insecure. That's what they look like. Gospel people are rejoicing, happy people, because our insecurities can be all washed away at the cross. We feel free. We're free people. There's one that's slave to law, and then there's people who are free, and they're over the law. They're above the law. We're under Christ and above the law. That's people who are like Sarah. That's, that's, you know, that's when you know if, if your mama is Sarah. Who's your spiritual mother in this illustration? In Galatia at this time, the persecution was not physical, it seems, but that doesn't mean it wasn't dangerous. These law-reliant teachers that came into these churches were undermining the gospel by telling people that they needed to do certain actions in order to receive God's blessing. Actions like circumcision, like keeping food dietary laws, like obeying the ceremonial festivities throughout the year. I'm saying, if you don't do that, then you're not going to be truly a child of Abraham. You're not going to receive God's blessing. And Paul is saying all through Galatians, no, 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 no. That is slavery. That will not work. That's not the pattern. That's not how God's grace comes. That's not who it comes to. Therefore, you should expect, if you are a grace-based person, you should expect persecution. All those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, Paul says in another place. You should expect people to not feel comfortable with your 
freedom in Christ. You should expect real religious types to look down on you, not because they care about your soul, but look down on you because they're too insecure about their own souls. And so they might tell you that you shouldn't do this behavior, even though the Bible doesn't forbid it. What are we to do with those kind of people? Paul says, cast them out. Don't just cast those people out. I tell you, cast out whatever voices are in your head. Cast it out. Cast out the people. Cast out the thoughts. Cast out the ideas. Any little glimpse of the idea that I need to earn favor for God's blessing. Cast it out. That kind of thinking will have no place in a church that's trying to be inclusive to all kinds of people. Do you see how that will kill the inclusivity of our church? It will make us an exclusive group of only those who have the certain list, whatever that list is. Be gone with the lists. God loves you in Christ, so now love one another. That's the list. And yes, we will work out how to love each other, and we will see that in Galatians 5, it will be by bearing fruits of the Holy Spirit as we let the Spirit lead us. So expect persecution. Cast out those that are in our midst who are undermining and denying the gospel. They are Hagar's. And I say it that way because you need to realize that this would have been like a big-time slam, you know? This would be like some social action leader like a Malcolm X or Martin Luther King Jr. and being like, you're like the KKK. Could you imagine? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Martin Luther King Jr. I'm the KKK. That's, that's kind of what he's saying here. You're the exact opposite. You're not a child of Abraham. You're a child of Hagar. You're an Ishmael. I mean, those are fighting words. And those fighting words don't stop. Paul is intense all through this letter. He is arguing his case. So let's conclude. We've seen that the gospel of grace comes, the blessing of Abraham comes to what kind of people? Really anybody that knows they need him. All kinds. And there's nobody too far gone. And God does it just that way so that he will get all glory and praise. And you will know you've received it because all you can do is then rejoice at the goodness and glory of God. I can take credit that, well, I figured it out. I figured out this whole faith thing. I spent a lot of time doing research in that library. I bought some books, and I figured Christianity out, and that's why I'm a Christian. That's, that's not a good testimony. When elders hear that kind of testimony, like, I did it. I accomplished it. I earned it. Like, I don't think you get it. Was not Jesus persecuted by the religious leaders, the Ishmaels? Was not Jesus questioned for being a little too free and not obeying all of the duties of the law? Was he not accused of being a drunkard because he ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners? Was not Jesus persecuted, not just with being teased or made fun of, but even to the point of death? Did they not treat Jesus like a Hagar? like an Ishmael, and cast him out. 
Do you not realize that the gospel is Jesus taking on all the persecution, all the curse, all the sin, all the self-righteousness? He was cast out so that barren women will have so many children. So that the impossible becomes possible. So that sinners like you and me become righteous. If you look down in your Bibles, you'll see a, a text that's quoted in blocked letters, at least in our black Bibles in front of you. See verse 27? For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Do you know where that text is from? There's a little footnote right before the word rejoice. Little letter A. This can help you read your Bibles, at least these black ones. They help you out. Do you see what's next to the little letter A? Isaiah, that's I-S-A, so down at the very, very teeny tiny print, says Isaiah 54.1, because it's a direct quote, word for word, right from the Old Testament. Do you all know what comes before Isaiah 51? It's not a trick question. It's Isaiah 53. And those of you that have been in church, you know immediately the barren woman will rejoice and have so many children she doesn't even know how to count them because of Isaiah 53. The suffering servant Messiah comes and he bears our sins. He was despised and they knew him not. They persecuted him. He had no form or figure that we would think highly of him. This kind of servant would come and he'd be pierced for our transgressions. He'd be crushed for our sins. By the punishment of God, peace comes to us. I don't think you should miss it. If we see this text as importing not just this phrase, barren woman, and attaching it to Hagar, but all that's around Isaiah in its context, that it's because of the Messiah who comes and bears all of the shame and all of the guilt and all of the sin that these kinds of blessings come. That's the context of Isaiah 54.1. Isaiah 53 has to happen first. The suffering servant has to come and suffer and die in our place. There's good news. He already came. His name's Jesus. That's what our whole church is about. Helping people realize that all these things are true today because Jesus did come. And he did bear our sins. And he did bring peace. So therefore, it's all grace. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we want to give you great thanks now for your word. We want to thank you that this word is good. I pray and hope that it would have not been confusing and that we would have understood its meaning and message for us today. We thank you that each one of us in this room, if we can call you Father and Lord, that it's because of Christ. If we have any strength, it's because of your strength. Father, we want to thank you for how good you have been to us in Christ. I want to thank you for the reminder of how good you've been to us and the cross.
with the bread and the cup that we're about to receive. Make us people who rejoice as we take this bread and cup. Help us by your spirit now to not simply go through a ritual of actions thinking we're going to get blessing because we drink a bread and cup. God, help us now. I pray, help us to be people who eat and drink the bread and cup as people who know that it is all because Jesus paid it all, all to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. In Jesus' name, amen.